The One in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Born in our fight, you know that's all we'll ever be. Hi everyone, welcome to Thorn in Your Side. My name is M. I'm busily adjusting the microphone, so I don't know if I'm loud or not. Hopefully I'm loud. May or may not include this in the final version. Let's see. I'm currently abuzz at the moment, but at the same time conflicted because I did promise myself that I wasn't going to watch the World Cup for reasons, but then if there is a, a religious side to me, it kicked in. Because whenever I have a spiritual moment, as is whenever the World Cup's on, and particularly when the um, the Socceroos are playing. So I had to watch it, and I watched their last match, and it was basically the first win that they've had in 12 years. So I, I feel good about that, but again, still feeling a bit guilt-ridden because of reasons. And touched upon it in the last episode where you thought we suspected that we're going to do a bit of a clampdown on forms of sport people's activist expressions and it's happened uh, and also it's impacted upon the audience as well because apparently they're not allowed to drink so there's a problem on a few fronts there i suppose human rights labor standards and also the right for the audience to to really get immersed into the full footballing experience aka they can't have booze so that's something that I'm really trying to address at the moment. I could probably just like dump this on my next guest as well. He's in a similar boat because he's American. America and Australia, I would argue, have a similar relationship when it comes to its connection with football, soccer, particularly as we seem to be the only two countries in the world that tend to use that term for that sport. I will introduce him. Um, he has been on Thorn in Your Side for a few times now. He's pretty much the unofficial Eurus correspondent. I've brought him back in again because stuff has happened in America again. Caught my attention. Here he is. It's Jason. How's it going, Jason? Excellent. I'm very glad to be here. Awesome. Well, like I was saying, Jason, just World Cup stuff. So it's exciting over here, despite feeling a bit guilt-ridden about it because that we were actually in with a shake of going to the final 16 the first time in about, I don't know, a decade. There's been a few World Cups where it's been like just basically making up the numbers for us. But it looks like you guys have got a very much a group of death that's formulated on your end. You want to share your experiences have been? Well, yeah, I just want to say that uh, yesterday was the best nothing-nothing victory <laughs> in American sports history. Drawing against the English felt like a victory, basically. So that's the big joke, is to say we won nothing to nothing. That's right, because they pumped Iran 6-2. And again, this rubs up against the tension that I was kind of referring to earlier. Like, I think Iran were a bit offset, because they had to full just boycott their anthem in solidarity with what's going on with Iran. Yeah, my feelings about playing Iran are really complicated for that reason. Like, 
obviously the players don't seem to be very happy with the current regime in their country. I can't imagine what they're going through with this. But it seems like in their last game, they kind of got it together to think they're going to at least win. <laughs> it looked very impressive against Wales. And I don't know if many folks outside the United States know this, that in 1998, the United States played Iran and they needed to win to advance and Iran destroyed um, the U.S. team. When's the final whistle coming, they ask. On the Iranian bench, the answer is now. And on they come to congratulate their colleagues on what must surely be their finest hour in World Cup football. I feel so privileged. I don't have any children now, but it's something I'm going to tell them about when I get older. It's, it was very emotional. It was the one time after so many years, after, after the revolution, after the hostage taking, after the Iran-Iraq war, after all the negative stuff you had in the media for so many years, it was something good out of, coming out of the country. And I was lucky to be one of those Iranians who was here in the stadium on that night. It was a thorough hiding that they gave us. And it was kind of like a thing that like at that point in the late 90s, there were very few Americans who watched soccer. And so like that World Cup it was the 94 World Cup in the United States got them involved. Then the 98 World Cup, they came back and they saw that and they were very much like, oh, what a waste of time. I think you guys are you going to get indoctrinated again in another four years, I believe. Yes. Well, again, like um, the 2002 team kind of saved it because when the World Cup was in Japan and, and South Korea, like they made it to the, the round of eight and it even outplayed Germany in the quarterfinal match. Mm. Things have changed nowadays. There are bars in every American city devoted to watching English premiere games on Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings. I was in Louisville, Kentucky three years ago, sorry, four years ago during the last World Cup. And I was visiting some friends and we went out to a bar that was just like wall to wall people during the World Cup matches. So I feel like in the United States, there's it's finally kind of broken through to where you don't have to explain yourself to people. Like it used to be if you if you watch international, I'm going to say soccer, I should probably say football. You know, when you're watching international football, people would look at you kind of weird or it was like a hipster affectation or it was all people who'd been to Europe at some point in their lives or lived abroad. And then now it's a, a thing a lot of, a lot of my students in school were like watching the game on their phones in the hallways, like between classes, like they were all really interested in like Senegal versus the Netherlands. So things have changed. Oh, it's good to see that the football's allowed a bit more of a global literacy amongst the Yanks. That's nice. Yeah. You do mention that that game though in 1998, America versus Iran. And my memory of that particularly was that was very much like a diplomatic event because I know that leading into that match, there was a lot of talk about the national tension between mm -hmm. the US and mm -hmm. Iran as a hangover from what happened in the 80s. And I remember there was like a couple of bouquets and messages of peace that were exchanged between the two captains and then the match progressed. That was my memory of it. But Iran themselves, you can't underestimate them. I don't know oh. if the, this news has carried through to you, Jason, and what they did to us in 1997. Do you know about that? No, I don't think I do. Okay. Um, cue YouTube clip. And suddenly the complexion of the game changes. Let's hope it doesn't, but this is the best period for Iran in the match. Ali Doi, danger for Australia here. The flag's down. It's an for Iran. Iran scored twice late in the second half to go through to the World Cup on the away goals rule. Australia's pain was overwhelming, even for the Iranians. I'm really sorry, really. I know John Warren 
I met last night another fabulous guy. I know that that team, 7-4, have been together yesterday, and I know how these people now are suffering. I know how Australian kids who play football are suffering now. I tell you the truth, if we had a winner here, it should have been Australia. The cameras came back on us, and I started to talk and uh, turned to Johnny, and uh, the rest is history. You just feel for them, not just the boys, they are representative of so many people who make this game their life. It's just, uh, I can't say anything. Right? All right, John. Yeah, so what happened in that match, Jason, as you've heard, that was going to be basically the first time Australia was going to go to the World Cup in 20-odd years. Everyone basically had half their mind thinking about France. And then they scored, I think, yeah, they scored those late goals. And Moran was able to qualify for that World Cup on the away goal rule. And all of that happened at the last minute of the match, and it was just absolutely <laughs> heartbreaking. But you can't, to use the cliche, you can't write off the Iranians. They're like, <laughs> they're, uh, hopefully this isn't going to be too politically incorrect, but they're basically like uh, the Middle Eastern Germans in the footballing sense that whenever you think you've beaten them, they, they will find a way to beat you again. That's what they do. That's their, that's their footballing ethos, and I, I've got to admire it to them. And th they've had the, the extra pressure this time around with the civil unrest stuff too. Yeah, and I know that like like in 98, like they were really, really wanting to defeat the United States. It was pretty plain in that game that the game mattered a lot more to them than to the U.S. players. And I really hope the U.S. team doesn't, doesn't look past them. That would be a terrible idea. I mean, I was just reminded today, I, I totally forgotten in the group stage in 2006, the U.S. managed to tie Italy, who mm. later who went on to win that World Cup. All I remember from that World Cup was losing the third game of the qualifiers to Ghana, and I had forgotten that the U.S. had actually tied Italy earlier in the group stage. Yeah, this is what we've learned um, as a footballing nation over the last uh, 10 to 15 years now. The rules have changed since that time in that we qualify through Asia now. Australia qualifies through Asia rather than through Pacific nations or Oceania. And the learning of that has been like Asian countries has just come a long way in the last decade. Yeah. And you're seeing that even in results in this World Cup where Japan's winning against Germany and Saudis are beating Argentina. That's shocking the world, but it's not shocking Aussie so much. It's just, it's showing a good benchmark of where the game is really getting at in Asia. And we qualify by the skin of our teeth. Yo. That's, that's the World Cup stuff, Jason, and this could very much threaten to be an episode in itself, but um, we want to get to the politics, but unfortunately, yeah. I want to bring up one more sporting thing, because I want to pick sure. my mind with an American while I've got them here. Um, cricket. Cricket? Nobody understands cricket. you got to know what a crumpet is to understand cricket. So... That's one other thing about being an Australian, Jason. We've kind of had like a shitload of World Cups recently. And uh, I'll actually touch upon this in a future episode where I'll have a bit more of an exploration about how we kind of look and identify with different sporting codes and why there is that uh, even so much as a political tension between the sporting codes here. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, to bring it back, there's like... Not only this footballing World Cup, but there was at least two other World Cups that Australia had skin in the game happening mm -hmm. literally at the same time. So the Rugby League World Cup and also, and tell me if this means anything to you, Jason, the T20 World Cup. Well, you tipped me off to this and I looked it up and now I'm kind of fascinated. 
as an American who really loves baseball and has been trying to understand cricket and has failed so far. It's your first tick that you, you guessed that it was cricket. But the thing that, that kind of confounds me is the fact uh, I, I've been having, I had a bit of a think about this when I first raised it with you. Not only are the laws of the, the game so baffling and it's almost like its own legal system, there's also like different variations of the game. It astounds me if there's anyone else in the rest of the world that's actually going to be willing to hang around to, to to properly understand them. Because, I mean, the reason why like cricket is successful, I think, is because it's a hangover of colonialism and and white homogeneity. You know, that seems to be the f- feeling for me. But this T Twenty version that seems to be threatening to be the international version. I don't know. What do you think? Well, yeah. Well, you said about imperialism is important. Like I had a friend. Um who grew up in Hong Kong and India and was always on about like cricket being so much superior to baseball. I said like, well, you know, it's just, it matters who you're colonized by, you know, like baseball is huge in the Caribbean and and Central America because those were places colonized by the United States and the same with like where cricket's popular. So it it does feel like they're these weird windowless monads unto each other Mm. for that reason that neither can really understand each other. But the T20 rules would be very much more accessible to like, people who are reared on baseball. And I even looked, you talk about the different rules. I looked in, I read a book recently about the history of baseball and that like, basically it emerged out of other games where there were like different regional variations. So there was a thing called the Philadelphia game and the Boston game and the New York game. Wow. And the New York game is the version that ended up winning out and being baseball. So it's interesting. And in baseball, they kind of used to have these different styles of play and they just basically ended up having one style of play so that to end up codifying it eventually yeah so it's like basically like in the 1840s 1850s it became the new york version became codified even but it it changed you know later on and stuff but my understanding is like cricket and baseball have common origins in these other bat on ball games you know i think that if americans are willing to start watching soccer they might be willing to start watching cricket if it's presented in a way that's accessible to them yeah, well, it's interesting how you talk about the the evolution of the, the games. I think it even parallels with, like, thoughts on anthropology, you know, like whether or not humanity evolved in a linear fashion from previous um, instances of primate species or it was just basically like we're an accident that just manifested through different variants of homo varieties. Like, what is it? I mean, it wasn't too long ago when like Neanderthals were considered to just be like over there, but now there's a new scientific line of thinking. I think a dude recently got the Nobel Peace Prize for it for suggesting that no, we're actually the culmination of um of interbreeding between Neanderthals, Homo sapiens, whatever other variations have arisen throughout the ages. Okay. Uh, I wonder if <laughs> I wonder if that can be applied to baseball and cricket, where it's like um, these sports are basically came up because there were all these different other variations that kind of happened and then by the end of it like there was a final decision on how things happened and then those versions persisted although cricket still seems to be going on this trajectory of change i don't think it's uh she becoming a homo sapien version of its sport (laughs) has happened yet okay um yeah what do you think there, Jason? Like, firstly, did that make sense? Well, I didn't think I could, you know, liken um, human origin story <laughs> to, like, cricket, but I think that's a really <laughs> smart observation, come to think of it. 
Um, so polite. You're yeah, so I think polite. some of it has to do with the fact that, like, the, the evolution stuff you're describing is also just like, at least in the United States, baseball is such like a, a nationalistic sport, right? And it's it's very much rooted in, it is my favorite sport to watch, even though I don't like a lot of the people who watch it, essentially. It's very much rooted in this idea of like, oh, this is like, you know, the tradition, right? This is like the great American pastime was like the old phrase for it, even though it's no longer the popular, most popular sport by a long shot. So I'm glad to hear that like cricket at least is trying to, you know, evolve. And I think being a more international sport in the way it's played, I think might, might lend itself to that. A lot um, of rituals in baseball, isn't there? What is it? The seventh inning? Is it the seventh inning? Everyone's basically got to stop what they're doing and then just sing, take me out to the ball game. I mean, if they don't sing it, they yeah, get kicked out of the stadium. Is that how it works? Yeah. Well, like this, this is the funny thing. These traditions start because yeah, the seventh inning stretch was supposedly the its origins were when William Howard Taft was the president in the early 20th century. He was a big baseball fan. He was at a game and he stood up and evidence between the top and bottom of the seventh inning and supposedly because the president was standing, everyone decided to stand. This is the folklore, at least. Mm. And this is where this ritual began. But the taking out to the ball game thing really kind of started with a, a broadcaster named Harry Carey, who... Uh, I listened to a lot as a child. He he um, broadcasted uh, Chicago Cubs games. He started this with Chicago White Sox games. Sorry, I'm babbling about this, but so no, uh, you, you you indulged my um, evolution theory into sports. So why not go nuts? This is a good example of evolution because when he he started doing this thing where he would sing over the PA system, taking me out to the ball game, and that was the thing that used to be like a Chicago thing, and then now it's like done at like. I've been to like maybe 20 different ballparks. It's done in all of them. And some ballparks have their own like additional things. So I'm a New York Mets fan and at Mets games after they play take with the ball game, they play this very jaunty Italian folk song um, called Crazy Mary. <laughs> Um, it's like a, a recording from like the 30s <laughs> and a friend of mine is uh who's a fellow Mets fan also teaches Italian and is fluent in Italian and he always gets mad at the song because he's like oh this is like kind of a bad version of a certain dialect that <laughs> it's like not even really Italian <laughs> but like the whole Everyone singing "Taking Me to the Ball Game" is very much like that. Didn't really start till the 1980s, really, when Harry Carey was doing it in the Cubs games. Hmm. Hmm. It's a, it is interesting. Taking it back to the cricket, though, Jason, with the T20, like I do notice that with the the, the American version of cricket, like it seems to, I um, mean, it's interesting because I think it, it's where it has its 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 parallels with um with a lot of sports. I think both in Australia and America, where I think it's there's been a lot of uptake from recent migrants to America, particularly South Asian and Caribbean migrants. Mm -hmm. So I would hazard to say that's reflected in um, the national team at the very least. Do you know about the national cricket team? Is it a thing? I don't know much. I mean, I do know that there are places in the United States where there are like local clubs that play. When I lived in Chicago, there was a park where there was, um, there were local cricket teams and they weren't all necessarily people from those backgrounds. There were like coaches who might've had Caribbean backgrounds who then got kids who grew up in chicago interested in playing it's still a very niche kind of thing it's it's really really below the radar but there are definitely people who light a candle for cricket uh in this country there's very little there's no discussion of any cricket national team in the united states i have to say 
Okay. While you were talking, I was just trying to see if there was a US T20 tournament. Uh, let me see. Just having a look what the internet is telling me, Jason, mm-hmm. you guys do have a league. It's called, um, and this is this is like imaginative, Major League Cricket. <laughs> so just like Major League Soccer then. They're just like, we'll use that branding. That'll get the weird foreign sport more attention. Yep. <laughs> Major League Cricket 1020 tournament to start in the US in 2023. Oh, it's it's going to be happening. That's interesting. Yeah, next year. I guess that's like that's like directly kind of copying Major League Baseball as well. Coming to the United States in 2023. I'm fascinated by this. Six teams from major metropolitan areas: Dallas, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Washington, Seattle, and New York City. So that's probably like the big six in terms of um, regional areas in the U.S., isn't it? Washington, Seattle. Okay, yeah, that covers yeah the the Mid Atlantic, the Northeast, uh, a lot of West Coast there. Which I think there is more cricket playing on the West Coast than there is in the East Coast. So yeah, a friend of mine is a sports historian and found that like um, back in the at the turn of the century, like American universities on the West Coast actually preferred rugby over uh, American football. Because their idea was, well, we face the Pacific, so we should be playing the sport of the other nations on the Pacific, right? Yeah. It's this idea that we should be looking outward instead of towards inward towards American football. Well, that's that was our sporting stuff, Jason. Now, let's have a chat about the reason why I really brought you in here, and that's the politics. So I'm hoping this still has some life in it, and I was hoping to catch you um, soon enough about it. It's the results of the uh, elections at the House of Reps level and the Senate. So mm-hmm. that's colloquially termed as the midterm elections, I believe. Yes. So, yeah, the, the two years between the four-year presidential election. The midterms happen every two years. The House of Representatives has elections. The Senate terms are for six years, so about a third of the Senate is voted on, which is a very strange system. And again, the number of in the House is, this is just a side note, is 435, because they set it at that number in the early 20th century and haven't changed it. So the number of people that are representative by a single representative is now is like 800,000. So the whole point of that body is to have a large number of representatives so you can have a small constituency and that's out the window but anyway mm. that's a digression um there's a movement to try to expand the size of the house to actually get better representation yeah and the way it turned out is that there was a big expectation of a so-called red wave of republican victories it didn't materialize they did just barely take back the house but their margin is quite small and on top of that their party is kind of fractious so there's a question over whether they'll be able to actually govern the House in any way and agree on leadership positions and so forth by having sort of some divisions within their party. Um, And then the Senate, the the Democrats um, have 50 seats to be sure. There's a runoff election in Georgia between two candidates. Um, If the Democrat uh, gets reelected there, um, then they'll have 51 senators. So they'll have a majority outright in the Senate, which that was really not expected. So even though the Democrats technically lost one House of Congress, typically the president's party loses big time in the midterm elections. um, And that didn't happen this year. So there's been a lot of talk about that. 
Yeah, it, it all looks very marginal, the results. So if you sneeze, um, someone will cross the floor and um, your, uh, your bill mightn't get up. I want to um, actually introduce a bit of a thought to you, Jason, because um, overnight, you mentioned the red wave. Overnight within yeah. Australia, um, as well as um, World Cup festivity, there was the Victoria elections. I don't know how much across it you are on your end, Jason, because it mightn't be the most uh, apparent bit of news for you. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I know the geography in question. I don't. Victorian elections did not make the news here in the United States. Because we are an incredibly myopic country <laughs> that forces other people to have to care about our bullshit and that doesn't really bother to understand everyone else's. That's okay. It only sort of gets up to Sydney as well. <laughs> um, so Victoria, Australian state, um, amongst the several states within Australia, we have our own state elections as well as the federal version. Um, and they all happen at different points in time. So there's been a, a few state elections that have happened this year amongst the federal one. Yeah, we've had the change of PM, Prime Minister, earlier this year um, as a consequence of the federal election. But what happened was the Victorian state election. And I bring this up because there was a sentiment that it was going to have its own version of a red wave. Mm -hmm. So last year, we um, with the COVID, we had like lockdowns in big population areas within Australia and had a, an episode recently where I talked about my experiences within the Sydney lockdown. Don't push me cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. And still trying to work through the traumas of that to be forthright. But in Melbourne, it was particularly characterised by an amount of activism against the lockdowns. A lot of it was due to the longevity of it. But uh, there's also the argument, which was touched upon in the, the previous episode, where we, we kind of felt that there might have been um, a bit of co-option in a lot of those actions by the libertarian right and also fringes of... I guess I'll make this a universal thing now, the cosmic right. So it became a catch-all for, an, you know, a, a lightning rod within Melbourne for all the different pockets of, of the right-wing exploitationists, extortionists, whatever, um, to turn up and basically voice their views about freedom. So anyway, um, the come the Victorian state election this year, there's been an amount of people that went to those lockdown protests that sat election tickets on a right-wing platform, libertarian platform. Now, as it turns out with the US midterms, the Victorian experience, there was no Victorian red wave. Um, <laughs> in fact, there was a landslide to the Labor Party, which is Excellent. basically the Australian version of the Democrats, you know, centre-left so they pretty much have a controlling majority. and But the lead up to it was there was a lot of intrigue about the possibility of there being its own red wave, but never materialised. And I suspect it's similar reasons to what's gone down in the US in terms of a democratic non-acceptance of the populist right wing out there type use. Would you contend that, Jason? Yeah, and I was happily surprised by the results, actually, because I was feeling very depressed before the election, because like your your average sort of centrist swing voter that we have in the United States views the Republican Party simply as one of two options to oscillate between and it, treating it like, oh, it's just like, if I don't like inflation, I'll just vote for the Republicans, not seeing them as like a shell for like an extremist right wing agenda, which is what they are. 
And I was kind of depressed because I felt like, well, that's just going to win them elections. People who will just say, well, the inflation's high right now. Um, I don't like how things are going. I'll vote Republican. And it didn't work out for them because, as you're saying, that like this sort of right wing version of populism is alienating to lots of people and that it's become very clear after this last election that's the case like the, the candidates they ran were closely identified with those things like this guy blake masters in arizona like they ended up losing um, there was a couple of candidates that even participated in the the insurrection with the, the guy with the horns is that correct i don't know if jacob chansley aka the q shaman Oh, no, he's in jail, but I'm saying, like, the ones that that basically fired him storming the White House that day. It's like, I believe there was a couple of candidates who also participated in that in some areas of the U.S. Yeah, Yeah, what's depressing is in places that are, like, very, very conservative, people like that did win office, you know. But in places where there's a mix that are, quote-unquote, purple places, people like that didn't do very well. Yeah, there's. I didn't see how this turned out. There was a local election in a in a town near where I grew up in Nebraska, where one of the candidates like put out like flyers of him supposedly at the insurrection as a as a reason to vote for him. Except he wasn't actually there. He doctored the photographs. <laughs> <laughs> was sort of like hilarious, but also profoundly depressing to me that he thought he could get people to vote for him. Is this um, how this democracy is the- dies? Yeah, but again, like a lot of like in places that that are more mixed politically, that message didn't work. But unfortunately, in places that were very heavily Republican, people just say, "Okay, I'm voting for the Republican. So, you know, in my home state of Nebraska, someone got elected to the state school board who who calls teachers groomers, you know, and my sister, my cousin, several people in my family are teachers out there. And it's obviously very disconcerting for them to be talked about like that. But in like the cities in the state, like Lincoln and Omaha, the populated areas, that message just didn't work, even though those are places that are generally pretty conservative. So anywhere where there's a mix of political opinions, that kind of stuff just didn't work. Yeah. Even though like in America, there was also obviously a lot of pushback on lockdowns. And what we did in terms of lockdowns was just puny compared to what was happening in Australia, obviously. <laughs> like there was there wasn't a whole lot going on that there wasn't a whole lot of restrictions, really. But that didn't really pan out for them. So I felt very optimistic afterward that I, I felt like that that political style just doesn't have enough people. That's not going to stop their representatives from trying to rig elections, though. Now, I wanted to talk about how within the midterm elections, this has gone down to the wire, which was unexpected. Now, I keep getting my halls of government confused, Jason. So which one is the smaller one again? Is it the Senate with the lesser number? Yeah, the Senate inexplicably sends two people from each state. So Wyoming, which has half a million people, has the same representation as California, which has over 30 million people in the Senate. Uh, All right, so this is how I'm going to understand it. The Senate uses a Sith rule, um, House of Representation, Jedi rule. Once Darth Bane destroyed the previous Sith Order, he instated the new rule and went into exile, putting the Sith for the next 1,000 years into the shadows until Palpatine and Darth Maul emerged. Some of the concerns regarding the rule were that a Sith Lord may advance in their plans faster if they had two princesses. However, The problem with this is that it would ultimately destroy them, as two weaker apprentices would join to overtake their master and create the cycle all over again. The rule of two also implies that every Sith master should place the survival of the Sith over his own survival, as opposed to attempting to preserve his own immortality, which is exactly 
what Darth Plagueis did, leaving him open to Palpatine's attacks. In essence, the rule of two was the main reason the Sith survived for so long, until Darth Vader finally turned back into Anakin and fulfilled the Jedi prophecy by wiping out the Sith, including himself. Politics, you know, it's all politics. Basically, yeah, like, yeah, and again, the, they, when they were created, like, uh, at the founding, you know, the sort of elite landowners who, who wrote the Constitution sort of intended the Senate to be a place for the the more high-born to sort of be a check on the House, which is more directly voted on by the voter. So that's also part of the distinction as well. The, the Senate has kind of, like, sort of traditionally been more staid than the House. Well, I, I guess that's how it kind of created a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, by emulating the Roman model. So yeah. the landowners, the elite landowners got representation and the slaves were subhuman. Uh, I, I think that happened in the US, did it not? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yes. And then it's, it's, it's upsetting, though, is that in today's day and age, you have Supreme Court justices will say things like, well, we should understand these things based on how they thought at the time of the nation's founding. Like, you know, abortion wasn't considered a right back then, so we can't consider it a right. It's like, well, people were owned by other people. Like, <laughs> It just sounds something as base as the argument, like you can't have a black Superman because he was white to start with, you know? You can't, you can't retcon, you can't reinterpret anything. I, I never thought of, of Samuel Alito as basically one of these terrible racist fanboys, but it kind of makes sense. <laughs> yep. I see the parallel here. Yep. There's the parallels, my friend. So just getting back to the, the Senate issue. So it's basically drilled things down to a very marginal level where in America, um, which is, uh, this is where the, there is a marked political difference between the US and Australia. Australia has preferential voting. US has first past the post. So there's a situation here where in the Senate, I don't think there's enough numbers to actually, I think there's actually one seat in it at the moment. And I, I did ask you at the, before this episode, Jason, what happens like in Australia, like the preferential votes would start kicking in and then you'd, you'd have a result. But in America, there it basically has to, a, another scenario has to be undertaken for it to come into play involving Atlanta and Georgia. Do you want to have a bit more of a chat about that, Jason? Yeah, sure. So again, it's like there needs to be in the first past the post system in Georgia. Not every state does this, by the way. In the United States, like uh, states get a great deal of control over the voting rules, which is kind of strange that your voting rights can be different based on where you live. In some states, you are barred from voting forever if you have a felony conviction, for instance. In some states, you're not. By the way, the state of Alaska actually has ranked choice voting. And it's been a huge boon for the Democrats in that state. <laughs> but uh, it, it might be getting copied, hopefully, in other parts of the country. But yeah, in That's Georgia, if one candidate doesn't get 50% of the vote in the first election, the top two candidates then face off in a runoff to uh, basically in this current election, uh, Raphael Warnock, who's the Democratic senator, was against Herschel Walker, a former American football player. I remember hearing he play for the Dallas Cowboys, right? Yes, and he was traded away to the Minnesota Vikings, who got hosed in one of the worst trades of all time. Yeah, the right. name just rolls off the tongue. I remember when Pat Summerall said it. It's my memory. <laughs> oh, Pat Summerall. Yes, the, the bourbon and cigar-scarred voice of my Sunday afternoons in childhood. Um, <laughs> that really brings me back. So, uh, 
Yeah, there was a libertarian candidate. It was it was a it was a you know razor close election. The libertarian candidate got like one or two percent of the vote, and so hence they have to have the runoff now. The mm. same thing happened in um in twenty twenty as well. So it was like Warnock was a special election basically because the seat had been vacated. So that's why he had to run again after two years instead of six. But yeah, Georgia, as you're saying, it was really shocking to people when they elected two Democratic senators in 2020. And a lot of it, as you're mentioning, has to do with Atlanta being a a magnet for people, drawing in people from other parts of the country. And it also become a city that's become very important culturally uh, for African-Americans and in terms of like uh, business as well. So it's kind of like this mecca for the black middle class in the United States in a lot of ways. Well, we're putting um, forward the thesis here that Atlanta, um, if we're going to get down to brass tacks here, that it's very much the, the epicenter bellwether of America right now. And it's uh, I think it has been expressed uh, with the way these votes have come to pass. Yeah, because if you look at voting patterns in Georgia, Outside of Atlanta, it's pretty skewed towards the Republicans, although it depends where you go. Like there are rural counties in Georgia where the majority of the population is African-American, right? Just across the deep south, that's the case. Um, But because Atlanta has been drawing in, been drawing in people from outside of Georgia, it's a very, again, my best friend used to live there. I've spent a lot of time there. It's a very modern, growing city. It's kind of, but the Republican Party's problem is the kind of people who are attracted to moving to modern growing cities are not the kind of people who vote Republican anymore. It certainly wasn't like that when I was younger. There's been a real political shift. There's a certain cultural demographic that they've kind of abandoned, basically. So you would say that there's a new urban class that's rising um, in American cities, and that's being expressed in the in the changing nature of how people vote, would you say? What's oh, going for on? sure. Yeah. Yeah. The voting disparities between the cities and rural areas are, are really extreme. And again, like you have, there's also a disparity within cities. There are some cities that are old industrial centers that are kind of, you know, dying off. And you have other cities that are like these growth hubs and, and Atlanta's one of them. How um, do you mean by growth hub, Jason? What characteristics are there to suggest that? Well, again, like it's, it's become like a center for corporate headquarters, for the new finance centered economy you know, medicine, things like that, you know, universities, like Atlanta's a city that's like growing in this way and drawing people in, as opposed to say a city like Cleveland, which is an old, you know, steel mill city, which is not drawing in new people, or a city like Birmingham, Alabama, which is also in the south in the Sun Belt, but is also a, a steel mill city and is like, you know, in steep decline. That just the new service focused industries are in places like Atlanta, for instance, or Austin, Texas, for that matter, that are in these so-called red states that are like pushing these places more blue because of the type of people that are being drawn to, to live there. Okay, that's interesting. So um, the change of industry and labor within these different urban centers, the different stages of urban development that, that, that can happen in response to how industrialization continues to develop and change and i guess we use the term before we use it again evolve uh, within these urban centers and you're also talking about the different cities that that kind of fall by the wayside because there's no adjustment or people just basically move away from them because the work isn't there um detroit's a big example of that as well with the auto industry collapsing yeah and again i used to live in michigan and the contrasts are very interesting because yeah detroit 
I mean, they've had some positive developments in recent years, but their population has dropped like tremendously. There's whole parts of the city that have basically returned to the prairie. It's quite striking. And again, I used to be, I was a, a university professor at a regional public university in Michigan, and about half my students came from families that had never been to college before. So it was a big opportunity for them. And what they didn't like hearing was the idea that if they got a college degree, they wanted to find work, they were very likely going to have to leave Michigan, right? They wanted to, they loved their state, they wanted to stay there, but it just, the economic conditions just didn't support it. And I moved to Texas soon after that for a different gig. And I would, I would tell people I, I had moved from Michigan, like my students or colleagues and like. So many people would tell me, oh, my parents are from Michigan. There's just this pipeline from places like Michigan to a place like Texas. The great um, Cornhusker migration. Yeah, basically. And what's interesting is that there's all this hype about, oh, Texas is going to no longer be a conservative state, right? It's it's demographics are changing, but that, that has not come true. But for some reason in Georgia, it has kind of become a purple state, right? Like they just reelected the Republican governor, but again, they have two Democratic senators. So I think partially because this population is small enough that the change in Atlanta can have a much larger ripple effect than, say, what's happening in a place like Austin or Houston, for instance. Sure, there's the growth there. Um, Jason, just for context, can you just mention what purple means? Is that basically a mix of Sorry. the Democratic and Republic? Is that what it basically means or something different entirely? Sorry, that's like that's just a slang term for, again, red meaning cons- a conservative state, blue meaning progressive, and purple being a, a state that swings back and forth. Gotcha. In Australia, they call that the swinger state. That's that's a better way of putting it. It's just that, you know, you have places like Arizona, Georgia that were traditionally very conservative now are swing states, basically. They go different directions. Yeah. I wanted to get towards the, the end of the episode, Jason, by maybe um, having a chat about your writing efforts, because there was one particular article that you recently wrote that really um, attracted my interest with bringing you on for another episode. It's a recent article that you've written in your recently established website blogging page called I Used to Be Disgusted, Now I Try to Be Amused, and the title of this uh, article that you wrote uh, earlier on this month why the Trump era isn't over. Now, I might just note there, Jason, you wrote this before the midterms, I believe. Actually, I wrote it, I wrote it right after. The right midterms. after. Okay, great. So it, it's, it has resonance. Awesome. Yeah, you would certainly feel like the Trump era certainly isn't over. Is that right? <laughs> oh, certainly not. And I re- the reason I wrote it was that in the American political press, there was just a ton of hype about this idea. Mostly because you have conservative Republicans who understand, like we were talking about, that the right-wing populist message isn't working. And so they were proclaiming these things. So you mentioned the Murdoch press. Of course, we have that here in the States. Um, The cover of the New York Post, which is probably, which is like, you know, a tabloid in New York, which is a big organ of the the Murdoch press in this part of the country, it said Trumpty Dumpty and showed Trump as Humpty Dumpty. And it was very much this, and the uh, Murdoch-owned Fox News has all been acting like, oh, uh, Trump is yesterday's news or blaming him for this. Like they are really trying very hard to say, oh, he has no power over the Republican Party anymore. They know that he's toxic. And they're trying to they kind of jumped on his bandwagon in 2016 and they're trying to like jump off. And they're trying to kind of marginalize him, basically. And I wrote that to show that, like, that's just wishful thinking that his style of politics still dominates the Republican Party, even if he isn't the presumptive nominee in 2024. 
whoever is will be following in his his political footsteps. Oh, um, I think it might boil down at the risk of predicting things. Um, it might boil down to a rivalry between Trump and his former protege, Rob DeSantis, if I've got that yes. name right. Yeah, Ron DeSantis, who, who again is kind of a good example of how the, the Murdoch types and others really tried to always hype these conservative governors who almost always end up crashing and burning in national elections. <laughs> so in 2016, Scott Walker was the conservative governor of Wisconsin, Jeb Bush, conservative governor of Florida, um, Bobby Jindal, conservative governor of Louisiana. They all went down in flames. Um, Trump basically demolished them in the primary elections. There's a real question people have, which is if DeSantis actually tries to take Trump on, will he live up to the hype? Because he seems to be a really disagreeable, like unpleasant person. Like palpably, you see this guy, you say like, I don't like him. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Again, Trump obviously gives off those vibes as well, but he has a certain charisma I don't understand it, but plenty of people are, it gets to them. DeSantis is very uncharismatic. He's like Nixon without the guile. I, I don't understand why they think he's going to be their standard bearer. Oh, I think the, the crude analogy there is basically like if you hang around the shit long enough, you get used to the smell. I think that might be what's <laughs> going on. Yeah, I just think that people like Fox News and others are just in, in sort of the conservative movement is just desperate to get somebody else in there. They they know that Trump is unpopular, right? They, they know that, that he's disliked, like not just by Democrats, but by independent voters um, really don't like him. And their only chance of winning the next presidential election is to nominate somebody else. But he's simply not going to allow them. I just want to draw towards the end of your article, Jason. Just correct me if I've misread it, but I think the thrust of where you're heading towards at the end of it is that idea of if the Republicans have any true good faith, they'll firstly look at the integrity, the political integrity of Trump and look at his, his true intentions for nominating himself. And from there, make the assessment whether they want to appoint him as a potential candidate for the upcoming president elections. But it would seem like that the, the intrigue is, is just too great, that it's just the whole idea of just power for power's sake is a little bit too enticing by the sound of things. And Am I correct in saying that that might be the thrust of your article there or there's something else going on? Exactly, that they, they care about power more than anything else. And that's why after he basically tried to overthrow the government on January 6th of 2021. They very quickly started to make excuses for him, to defend him, to hamstring investigations into him because they thought that's how they were going to maintain power by defending Trump because that's who their base wanted. And if their base voters still want him, they're still going to, you know, they're still going to support him. Like at, at base, all they care about is power. There, there's no other principles it's hilarious that they he tries to overthrow the government and attacks the capitol building sends his minions to do that and they they don't turn on him but he loses elections for him then they turn on him <laughs> that was unacceptable keeping them out of power is, is the only thing that will dissuade them right so i guess uh, my last question here jason and this will be the the home stretch of it i suppose is that if trump becomes elected again, um, has his second term. What are, you, what are your thoughts on the chances of that happening? And if it does happen, is this yet another potential benchmark towards the downfall of U.S. hegemony, U.S. civilization, and dictating the terms for the remainder of the 21st century? Uh, what do you think about your response in such a loaded 
couple of questions, Jason. <laughs> well, I mean, right now it's so hard to predict. Like I in 2016, I did not think he was not. It wasn't until right before the election I thought he could actually get elected. So my my opinion might be completely off base. I think that like even if he gets the nomination of the Republican Party, he might end up alienating a number of people who might possibly vote for him. He's very unpopular, right? But as we've discussed, the Republican Party has also been trying to make it difficult for people they don't like to vote. They've been playing shenanigans with the elections. So I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility that he could get reelected. Again, it would be with a minority of votes, but because of our ridiculous electoral college system, that's how he got elected the first time. He doesn't need a majority of votes. I think him getting elected by a minority of votes would be pretty catastrophic. I don't know if you noticed all this news that he met at his estate in Mar-a-Lago uh, over Thanksgiving uh, with Kanye West and with Nick Fuentes, who's a prominent sort of, I don't know, I, well, can I call him a neo-Nazi or like just short of a neo-Nazi, like like explicit anti-Semitic hate and all that kind of stuff? And again, uh, I think Kanye... these days we're kind of getting Elon Musk into that bracket now as well, given shenanigans with Twitter. So um, yeah, happy to cast in a wide net. Yeah, and so you have him meeting with people like this, and it, to me, it's just it, it signals his support for just out and out fascism, right? Like not even not even trying to cover it up. I, I think such a an election victory. I, I think American hegemony has already been, you know, I think that's that bird has already flown. <laughs> but that he did that the first time around. Yeah, again, I, I don't see how people in the world can trust this country. Um, we we already had George W. Bush and the Iraq invasion, and then the first Trump administration. I, I think the the a second Trump administration would be the coup de grace for the international system to be sure. Again, there's the fact is he's also very old and, and and not necessarily has good personal habits. So God knows what happens on that front. It's, it's hard to say. That's what the Murdoch press is praying for, is like a stroke to solve this problem. <laughs> they don't have to think about it in 2024, right? Then again, I think that's what um that's what I think certain two Murdoch sons are actually thinking about in terms of dad. I think the sentiment is similar there as well, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, to finally get the old man out of the way and be able to run things on their own, uh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, or work out what the fiefdoms are going to be between the two. Uh, Just saw footage of him from the late 80s recently, and I thought, my God, he looks older than death in the 80s. How is that man still around? I don't understand. Um, I think um, I think Mephistocles, if I can pronounce his name correctly, he might be looking to, uh, to settle some business in the near future. Who knows? <laughs> Or at least become a new Marvel character in an upcoming MCU movie. Actually, yeah, the hot rumor is it's going to be the guy who played Borat, Sashin Baron Cohen. Interesting. Yeah. I'd watch that. All right, well, moving forward, Jason, I, I think we'll we'll wait with bated breath to see what happens with um, the next two years with how the, the presidential stuff's going to emanate. It looks like... Biden is going to stick around for the second term. I know that we had previous conversations about it. We were wondering whether he was going to be a seat warmer, but I think he's yeah. realizing he's got enough enough of a good blood transfusion there himself to um, <laughs> to assume a second term. guess we'll just see how that plays out. And for the very immediate situation, at least anyway, see how this World Cup comes about and see who goes the furthest, the Aussies or the US. Let's see what happens. 
Well, how do you know I'm rooting for the soccer ruse? Again, that my students are so into it that we were watching part of the game during our lunch break with, with France when Australia scored that first goal. Everyone was so happy. <laughs> um, and then I had to go teach a class and I came back and it was like, oh my God, what happened? <laughs> so I, I missed the French comeback there. But know yeah. that generally American soccer fans are rooting for the soccer ruse here. We want to see them advance. Yeah, I think uh, I think the the feeling is mutual. Like in terms of developing nations um, in the soccer front, like Australia and America are still those. Um, yes. So it'd be interesting to see how far both teams advance this time around. But yeah, funny that you mentioned the the soccer is France game because yeah, looking back on it, I think when we scored, it just basically pissed them off. Um, yes. I think look, I think looking back, we shouldn't have scored. <laughs> I do believe you can score too early in a match. You yeah. know, like get more nervous after an early goal. Like, oh no. Yeah. And uh the other idea that we had, Jason, I think um I think we sort of touched upon it this episode. That we we're gonna talk about shopping malls and leisure and all that sort of thing. Um uh, I think yeah. we we're sort of talking about it with the changing scape of urbanization and how that influences US political landscape. I'd be happy to kind of talk a bit more about that because I think we struck an interesting thread today. Yeah, I mean I would too. Like that's a minor obsession of mine is shopping mall culture yeah can um still think about um what was it was it the second season or third season of um stranger things where they had the the big shopping mall big bus fight around off the season yeah i haven't seen a full season after the first i have to admit oh okay i'm bad about sticking with shows all right well let's for our next episode uh i'll give you some homework jason you get up to speed with stranger things and then we can start the discussion from there how's that sound so my kids are obsessed with it now so they're about to catch up on the second season so i'll I'll be able to watch that with them excellent all right we have a plan okay well thank you very much for your time jason we'll see through this world cup to start with and then we'll see where things go with the u.s election and if We've still got enough semblance of um, civil infrastructure. By that point, we'll look to do another episode. Sound good? That sounds great, (laughs) barring uh, any unforeseen uh, media blackouts. Cool. Um, Funny, not funny. Anyway. (laughs) Got to laugh not to cry. Yeah, yeah. Or used to being disgusted, now trying to be amused. Precisely, yes. See what I did there? All right. Thanks, Jason. I'll catch you later. All the best.